Our Father, your word tells us that we are to marvel to see how great a love that you have shown to us, that we should be called, we who know you, children of God. And such we are. By your doing, by your sovereign and eternal purposes, by your, as John would later say in his epistle, expression of your very nature of love that you had sent the Son to be a propitiation, a satisfaction, a wrath-averting sacrifice for us, that we could be forgiven of our sin, which is deep, that we could be made new, that we could be made clean who are dirty, that we could be made alive who were dead, that we could be filled with hope who previously had none. And all of eternity, O oh God, will be gazing on your glory, your majesty, your holiness, and delighting in it. May our days here on earth be spent in seeking and endeavoring to know that more and more. May we, by the work of your spirit in us, have the faith and the attitude of Paul who says he presses on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of you and Christ Jesus which is the glory of the resurrection, the glory of our future in Christ, the glory of the redeemed. Lord, we have one request, that we would be found faithful to the end for your glory. And now we pray as we look at the big picture of your work in this world that you would, Holy Spirit, teach us. We pray this in your name, Jesus, amen. All right, well, this morning we are going to begin, as I promised, uh, our ascent up to the book of Revelation. We'll hopefully get there in the next four or five weeks. And by ascent up to Revelation, I simply mean that Revelation is a big task. It's an overwhelming task, actually. It's a daunting task to come to grasp fully uh, all that God has revealed to us about the end, and particularly through the 22 chapters of the book of Revelation. Uh, but we will get there and we'll take our time once we do. But we need to prepare ourselves for it because there are many things to consider. Uh, to begin that, this week I want to begin by looking first at the big picture. This is the 80,000 foot flyover of God's grand design for creation. And there are many ways that you could approach this. We are, as the title suggests this morning, going to look at it through the garden, from garden to garden. The scripture begins in the garden or God's purposes begin begin in the garden, the garden of Eden, and they end in the eternal state, which is again a picture of a garden and a temple and a holy city. Uh, what we'll do this morning is look at the grand picture. Next week, we're going to look at the topic of what role does eschatology, as our understanding of the end times, play in the believer's life? Why is that significant? And then we'll, after that, look at the different structures or ways that this is understood by the church and under covenantalism and dispensationalism, which are two broad systems of how we understand uh, the ending of all things. And then we'll come to the book of Revelation itself, and we'll consider the big picture of Revelation and the very ways that it's approached and the different ways that it's understood. And then we'll actually begin the book itself, and we'll try to uh, do that in a, in a timely manner, but that's, that's the plan and the program to bring us into the book of Revelation. But this morning, as I said, I want to look just at, introduce it by looking at the grand picture, the grand design. And as you're probably tired of me saying, I feel like a broken record, but there's way more here than I'll have uh, time to go through. And uh, I always try to shorten the message, and every time I try to shorten it, it gets longer. So I don't... <laughs> 
I don't really know how that happens, but uh, I'm going to have to do editing as we go along and try to hit at least the, the highlights of this. Uh, this is, if I could liken this message to looking at the highlights, the main points of a table of contents of about a 3,000-page theology book. Uh, so this is by no means exhausted. It's not even hitting necessarily all of the headings. It's merely to give a big picture, uh, looking at uh, from the uh, vantage point again of, of way up high, the overall movement of God and purposes of God for man as they're worked out uh, through his creation and through his redemption and ultimately the end where he's summing up everything. This is essentially a Christian biblical worldview. We have a lens through which we view the world, how we understand everything that we see and our place in it and what God is doing. And this is a way to just look at that as a big picture. Uh, we sometimes can lose the forest in the trees. And so this is a chance to, to step out and look at the grand picture rather than all the details in between. With that being said, we're going to look at it under four main headings. And the first is this. Uh, it'll go up there. But the first is this. The garden establishes God's purpose for creation. The garden, here we could say the garden of Eden, establishes God's reason or purpose. It's really purpose, but I needed an R, so I said reason. Uh, God's reason for creation. So let's begin by just reminding ourselves, and again, in a very general overview of creation uh, that is laid out for us at the very beginning of God's covenantal word to his people, the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis. Now, the opening chapter of the Bible, Genesis 1, establishes for us God's relationship to creation and his reason for creation. It establishes for us his relationship and uh, reason for creation as it is centered on the creation of man who set apart from everything else that God has made is set apart by this reality we're familiar with that man bears the image of God man bears the image of God and in bearing the image of God man is tasked with fulfilling God's will and God's purposes for creation and in fulfilling that task for God's will and purposes for creation receives a particular blessing from God receives a particular blessing from God and this is in verse 29 I'm obviously going to just hit the highlights we're not going to look at everything but he says in verse 28, really, actually, God blessed them after saying, we'll go back to 27, God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Here then God's blessing and God's will for man is explicitly stated in Scripture at the very beginning of all things. Now, you might know that previously God actually blessed the animal creation and he said be fruitful and multiply. So what sets this blessing off from that blessing? It is this, that the blessing that God is giving to Adam and Eve here as the first humans, Adam as the representative human and them as the first people, uh, is this, that their blessing is inextricably tied to their obedience in fulfilling God's will for them, which is laid out as ruling and subduing the earth. Ruling and subduing the earth. And this way, man is to fulfill God's purposes of creation. 
Uh, one way that that's emphasized is that after the sixth day, after God finished the work of creation, speaking into existence everything that he brought into being, it says that there was a seventh day, and on the seventh day, God rested from all of his works. That is, all of his works from creation. He did not rest from work. He's always working. Jesus said, as I, my father's works, I'm working. That God is always working in his creation. But he brought nothing new in terms of his created purposes into being. He stopped and he rested. God was not tired. He did not exhaust himself. He did not need a rest after going to the gym or something like that. It is simply to say this, that he stopped working and he set aside this day for many reasons, one of which is to give a cycle or a structure to the work week of man or to the week of man and to show that God rested and when he rested from his work, he now is going to move into and entrust to man the stewardship of everything that he has created. And that's precisely what we see in Genesis chapter 2. After giving a general account of creation, we come to Genesis chapter 2, and he zeroes in specifically on an account of man's role, work, and relation to creation and God himself. It is then the account of the creation of man, male and female, and he gives this account in the context, as already noted, of a garden, of a garden that God himself created. Well, let's just look at some general features to set the tone. What is God's will and purpose to man and our relationship to him? Well, note first in chapter verse 8 that God planted a garden towards the east in Eden and there he placed the man whom he had formed. He set apart a specific environment in which man was to be placed and he was to fulfill and begin the task that God had assigned to him. This garden was set apart from the rest of the creation as the initial point of man's dwelling with God and fulfilling the task that God giving him, namely to rule and subdue over and subdue the earth. As they multiplied, the intention was is that what God was beginning in the garden, in this particular spot, as they multiplied and were fruitful and filled the earth, the, the borders of the garden would begin to be expanded over all of the earth. It would all be cultivated by all of those who bear God's image and all for his glory. It would be a place of flourishing and of fellowship with God and of harmony. That is the intended design. We note that when God created man, male and female, he did so with a particular order. And that is that he created Adam first. Adam who would fulfill the role of being head and representative of humanity. To lead in the task of subduing and ruling. God created Adam first. God is under no necessity to do anything in any particular way. So when God acts, he does so very intentionally. He does so very purposefully. He does it for a reason and he does it to communicate something. And so it is here. He created Adam first as the head and as the representative. In being created first, Adam was given the specific command and tasked with the work to keep and to cultivate the garden. He was given the command of naming the animals, which was an expression and an exercise of authority and dominion over all the earth. In essence, it demonstrates Adam as king, as ruler, as viceroy, if you will, of God on earth, exercising the rule of God over all that he created that he is to do it as God's representative. 
This headship is also displayed in Adam naming Eve, but with this distinction, obvious distinction, is that Eve is created as Adam's equal bearer of God's imagery to aid by his side as an equal in the task of ruling and subduing creation. Adam stands as head, but with Eve alongside, not under him, as is the rest of creation. Notice thirdly, that Adam was again given the task to cultivate and to keep the garden. The implicit intention, as I already noted, is that in doing this, in fulfilling this will and command of God, that the conditions of the garden that begin in this particular location was to be expanded throughout the whole earth. It is interesting, and we'll come back to this later, that the very same terms to describe Adam's work of keeping and cultivating the garden uh, are used to describe the work of the priest in the holy temple. We'll come back to that. Just hold on to it. So this is the general purpose of God as it's demonstrated in first in his creation of man and of woman, Eve. Now, what is the character of the, the general, again, environment of this garden? Adam had fellowship with God who was present in the garden. There's a very personal interaction that's throughout this creation account. God formed man. He breathed into him the breath of life. God spoke to man and gave him a command. God brought the animals to him. God caused a sleep on Adam out of which he took a rib. And then God brought the woman Eve to Adam as the helper that would be suitable to him. Later in chapter 8, it is a seemingly an ordinary event that the Lord God would walk in the garden with Adam and Eve and that he would have fellowship with them, some discourse with them. All this indicates, as one author noted, that God desired a human son and daughter who would abide in sweet fellowship with him, loving and obeying him from the heart. That was the idea. Adam and Eve were together God's vice regents over the earth. They were to rule in his stead for his glory. They represented him as his image bearers and his image bearers were to manifest and extend that glory over all of the earth. Again, by multiplying, by filling it and by subduing it and ruling over it and that from the context of the covenant of marriage. Again, another said this. This is the picture of how God intended human life to be lived. The Garden of Eden is more than a place. It is a way of life and the state of soul. It's how God was to relate to, uh, or how man was to relate to God and to one another. Note secondly, in this idea. So that's how it begins. It begins in a garden. It begins with holiness. It begins with fellowship. It begins with obedience to God's will. It begins with God's blessing. It begins with joy and with innocence and with harmony. But as we know, it doesn't stay that way. And here's the second point. The garden becomes, however, the place of man's rejection of God's purpose. The garden becomes the place of man's rejection of God's purpose. And there we are introduced immediately in chapter 3 in this idyllic situation, this paradise, if you will, the entrance of creation, the serpent, a creature who is crafty more than any beast of the field. And he comes to Eve, we're well familiar with this, and he begins to introduce the idea that God is not all that he said he was. And that your situation is not actually as good as he has made you to believe that it is. In fact, God is a deceiver. 
And in fact, God is one who does not want you to flourish, but wants to hinder you and to hold you in. And you can step out with all of the good things and abilities that you have and attain what is really for your good. You can attain what is really for your happiness. You can do uh, more than what God has limited you by. In other words, Satan is the emancipator. He is the freer. And the essence of this sin, the egregiousness of it in Adam's rebellion, and we say Adam's rebellion, clearly Eve was deceived. She took the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which was before easily avoided. She saw that it was a delight to the eyes. It was good for food, and it was able to make one wise. As we've noted before when we've covered this passage, her whole perception changed. It was an internal change. She viewed things differently. Nothing else had changed. What had changed is inside of her. What was before forbidden now became the very center of her objects and desires, the very center of all of her hopes and her dreams and her satisfaction. It was this tree. And so she ate and she gave to her husband who was with her who was with her. Adam was not deceived. He knew very well that that was wrong, but he took and he ate nonetheless. And through Adam, as the head and representative, sin entered into the world. Now, what is really going on here besides that? It is namely this, and essentially this, that in sinning against God and following through with the disobedience of his wife through the deception of the serpent, he essentially rejected and rebelled against God's authority and God's word is trustworthy. And in doing so, man's position was changed from under the authority of God to essentially placing himself under the authority of Satan, of the serpent. And essentially saying, I am going to believe the serpent's word over God's word. I'm going to believe my own intuition and follow my own will over and above God's expressed will for me. In essence then, even as the serpent tempted, God was made a liar and the serpent was made a truth teller. And that is what is repeated even in the New Testament. Jesus says he's a liar from the beginning. John says in John chapter 5, if you don't believe on the Son of God to whom God has borne witness, we've made God a liar. And that is essentially what happened there. God became a liar and Satan became the truth teller. And one said this, Adam and, Eve dis Adam and Eve's disobedience to God is an act of the utmost treachery. On the one hand, they knowingly betray the creator who has entrusted them with his authority to govern the earth. And on the other hand, they give their allegiance to a cunning creature who challenges God's authority with the deliberate intention of overturning his careful ordering of creation. By betraying God and obeying the serpent, the royal couple dethroned God. God is no longer king and created God's creation purposes are turned upside down. And so this sin, as we know, brought a change in conditions not only between man's relationship with one another, they're expressed in the relationship of Adam and Eve, who instead of lovingly coming together, become each other's accusers, essentially, God is no longer walking in peace and fellowship with them, but they hide themselves. God curses the serpent. He says the, curses the ground to Adam, and he curses, brings a curse upon the woman. Everything is changed. And the primary change, however, is this, that comes at the end of those curses, that man is separated from the presence and the blessing of God. And this is how it ends. Therefore, the Lord God sent him, speaking of 
Adam and Eve, out of the garden to cultivate the ground from which he was taking, verse 24 of chapter 3. So he drove the man out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way of the tree of life. And so the garden was now only a memory. And the new reality was there was a condition upon earth which bore not God's blessing, but God's curse. Now at this point, man, by nature and by choice, came under the authority and the controlling influence of Satan and the consequences of sin. As God had promised, instead of life, death reigned. Instead of righteousness, joy, peace, and flourishing, there was wicked misery, destruction, and violence and selfishness. That's the world we live in. We live in a Genesis 3 world. And so that's what they entered into. And no longer, or not very long, into the account of the history of man, due to this result, instead of filling the earth to bring about the glory of God, to bring about the flourishing of humankind, the earth is filled, but in its filling, it is corrupted. And so in Genesis chapter 6, God says that all of man has corrupted his way. Verse 5, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So instead of being subdued and ruled under God and for God and for the flourishing and the blessing of man, it is a place of incredible sin, incredible violence, incredible untrustworthiness and immorality and all manner of wickedness and evil such that God has one decision or one uh, act, and that is to destroy everybody who is on the earth. It says in verse 12, God looked at the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. The conditions of the garden are a distant memory. And while the flood stands as an act of judgment of God upon the earth, it's more than merely a judgment of God upon the earth, which is significant in itself. It is God essentially saying, you have corrupted the earth, I need to cleanse it. It's like him washing it clean. In a much lesser sense, uh, uh, in Los Angeles, it doesn't rain much. And so things get dirty. And after a rain, one thing you notice is all the streets are clean, the gutters are clean. It's kind of got this bright freshness to it. Uh, there's a sense in which God is doing that with the earth. It's been corrupted, and so he's going to wash it all away, saving Noah, his wife, and their sons and wives, protecting them to start all over. And so then that's what we have. After Noah is rescued, uh, mankind is wiped off the face of the earth. He reestablishes the covenant with man, or he, re he establishes a covenant with Noah and really all of creation, in which he essentially, and we've covered this in the recent past, which essentially he, he says, I will not destroy the earth again, even though man is corrupt. He sets a rainbow as a sign of that. And in effect, what God is doing is he's saying, I'm creating conditions, that is, that I won't destroy man, for me to fulfill my promise for me to fulfill my covenant. Namely, that one will come from the woman who will crush the serpent on his head. In other words, the corruption that was brought into my world will be overcome. And I'll guarantee the conditions of that by saying this, though man is wicked, though corruption is the same, though there's still the evil of their heart, I won't destroy the earth. I won't do that. And so he makes a covenant. But we would 
do well to note, as Scripture makes clear repeatedly, that even though he stays his hand and he does not destroy the earth as he did in the flood, his wrath still abides on man in rebellion to him. His wrath abides on the sons of disobedience, the Apostle Paul puts it in that way. The, the anticipation of the prophets, the anticipation of the psalmist is that there is a day that's going to come in which God will ex execute perfect justice on the earth. And the earth rejoices at that. Why? Because it will be cleansed of its corruption and righteousness as it was intended will reign. And so we don't get very far into the story again. We're under these conditions there is an expression of the rebellion of man. And here, let me look at this briefly. And that is in the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel. Here then, man has again been made to multiply, but they are not filling the earth. And they are not filling the earth, not merely by happenstance, but as a direct act of rebellion against the will of God. You see, things don't change. And they said in verse 4 of 11, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the earth. This is the expression, the mantra, the theme of the kingdom now under the influence not of God, but under Satan, who says, God says scatter. They say, no, we won't scatter. God says that creation is to be subdued for his glory. They say, no, it is for our glory. And so God deals with that. The Lord came down to see, as we know, he scattered. He confused their language and scattered them throughout all of the earth. And yet, he did not leave himself without the continuing working out of his promise. But we are reminded at this point that if salvation is going to come, if the conditions of the garden are going to be restored, it's not going to come by the doing of man. It's going to come by the doing and the sovereign work of God. And so here's the third point. The garden is reestablished. So the garden sets the reason for creation, for man to live in fellowship with God and with one another to subdue the earth and rule over it for God's glory, the flourishing of man. That purpose was rejected by man and the representative of Adam and Eve with Adam fulfilling the role of headship and representative of man's sin entered into the world. And rather than God being king over man, Satan now takes that position and the consequences are worked out in man's history. And here we have then in the early pages of Scripture the testimony in the Tower of Babel that man is going in defiance of God to stand in rebellion to him on their own independence to achieve their own will, to do their own thing, and God scatters them. And yet, in the third point, we have the garden is reestablished by God. The garden begins to be reestablished by God in Israel and the tabernacle and the temple. So let's look at this. Immediately juxtaposed to this statement, if you were to zero in on verse four, what is the purpose of man in defying the will of God? It is this, that supreme in the affections of man and in the intention of man is not to bring God glory, to subdue the earth for his glory, that his name may be great. It is to make our name great. In other words, we are the end and the sum total of all of our desires and purposes. God is irrelevant. 
As a matter of fact, God is an offense and an obstacle to our purposes. And it's, and it's captured in these words, let us make a name for ourselves. Let us make ourselves our names. Immediately juxtaposed to that is verse 2 of chapter 12 of Genesis. God says, calling out Abraham, telling him what he's going to do. He says this, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great. I will make your name great. In opposition to the rebellion of men, I'm going to work and your name will be great and it will be great, and get this, it's not for Abraham's sake, but in making Abraham's name great, Abraham is the servant of God. God is making his name great as the one valued, treasured, and believed on by Abraham and fulfilling God's purposes. So God will do it through a man who is going to be his representative and he will begin then to bring about what man was originally created to do in the first place and God will do it for his own purposes. This is then the Abrahamic covenant and he makes these promises, I will make you a great nation, I will bless you and I will make your name great and so you shall be a blessing. Abraham was to go out from the place he was into the world to the place that God promised where he would be then established as a nation and a people. God confirmed his promises many times in the life of Abraham. You're familiar with some of them in Genesis 15 where he also gives to him a repetition of this promise. Later he gives to him the sign of this promise which is circumcision and then he affirms that through his children Isaac and Jacob. Now, this is all catapulted forward in the fulfillment of the establishment of Israel as a nation in Egypt. In redeeming Israel from Egypt, God was establishing his authority and Israel's unique relationship to him. In Exodus chapter 4, Israel is said to be God's son, my firstborn. Israel takes on the role of son to God. Their unique task before him is that they will, in Exodus 19.6, be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And their responsibility to live out this relationship is in the framework of God being among them as a sanctuary. And this is important. Look at verses 17 through 18 of Exodus 15. Or you don't have to, I'll read it. He says this, as they're praising God for their deliverance, this is a prayer of praise. You will bring them and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, the place, O Lord, which you have made your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, and the Lord shall reign forever and ever. In other words, God will dwell once again among men through a people that he has called and established as the unique recipients of his blessing. In this way, and here's what I want to briefly just identify for us, is in doing that, in redeeming the nation of Israel, in making the promise that God will again dwell among them, he will again dwell among men, in the language of a sanctuary, God establishes the memorial and the reality of this promise through establishing the temple. And the tabernacle. The temple and the tabernacle then become an inauguration, if you will, of God recreating the conditions of Eden in hope and in promise. Let's just notice a few of the parallels here. The physical features of the tabernacle and of the temple. 
The garden, as we know, was a place of lushness. There was an abundance of trees and of vegetation, plenty of food and for the, the sustenance and the delight of man. This is replicated in the temple of Solomon. Listen to the way it's described and just listen. In 1 Kings chapter 6, it says, Then he carved all the walls of the house round about with carved engravings of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers, inner and outer sanctuaries. And so he made two doors of olive wood, and he carved on them a carvings of cherubim, palm trees, open flowers, overlaid them with gold, and he spread the gold on the cherubim and on the palm trees. There's garden-like conditions, which, by the way, we're not going down this road, was a common condition within the ancient Near Eastern religions of their temple worship of their gods, were garden-like conditions. And so they are here in the tabernacle and later in the temple. The lampstand that God had placed, so let me just get a picture, so... uh, Maybe one time I'll put a picture up there. But you had in the tabernacle a fence that separated it off from the rest of the camp. As you entered into the tent, you came into the outer courtyard in which there was a bronze altar and there was the sea. And then you entered into the tabernacle itself. And as you entered into the tabernacle, you went through the curtains and there was a holy place. And in the holy place, there was an altar of incense. There was the table of showbread. And then there was the light that came from the candle uh, that was placed in it. And then separating that front room, the holy place from the black pla- uh, the most holy place was a veil. And within the veil, there was the ark, the ark of the covenant in which were later manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the Ten Commandments. And so that was the basic structure. And all of this, here the point being made, is that there is in the, the environment of a garden and the lampstand is sometimes viewed, and this is possible, it's not, you can't be overly dogmatic, but it's sometimes viewed as a representation of the tree of life. It itself is described in the language of a tree. It's three branches, they're called, that go out on each side, and they are shaped like almond branches with buds and blossoms. In the same way, the garden, was, the garden of Eden was rich in gold and precious stones. The key pieces of furniture in the temple are overlaid with gold, The tabernacle, the altar, and the ark within the walls of the tabernacle and then later the temple, there is the reflection of gold everywhere that the light hit. On the garment of the priest, there is all manner of precious stones representing the nation of Israel. It's described this way. So Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold And he drew chains of gold across the front of the inner sanctuary and he overlaid it with gold. Everywhere there was the imagery of precious stones and reminders of the conditions of the garden. A third way that it parallels is that Adam was tasked, I mentioned this earlier, with cultivating cultivating and keeping the garden. The same language is used of the Levites and the priest. Let me read just to you one section. Again, just listen, in Numbers chapter 3, in Numbers chapter 3, verse 7 and 8, uh, the writer says this, they, speaking of the Levites uh, and the priests, they shall perform the duties for him and for the whole congregation before the tent of the meeting to do the service of the tabernacle. They shall keep all the furnishings of the temple of meeting along with all the duties of the sons of Israel to do the service of the tabernacle. 
Their task was to cultivate these conditions that God had created for them, the place where he would meet with his people. Lastly on this section, the presence of the cherubim. Remember that God placed cherubim, angels, at the entrance of the Garden of Eden, in that case to keep man out to protect them from the tree of life. The cherubim were main decorations within both the tabernacle and and the temple uh, even more so. The cherubim was at the entrance of the, who was at the entrance of the garden to protect man from the presence of God in the tree of life is placed and embroidered in the curtain and the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place and it is the most holy place where God's presence was to dwell in the place where the ark was. And so they, again, are reminders of the garden. But most importantly, the tabernacle was the place of God's presence among his people. That is the most significant element. In Exodus 25, 8, he says this. God does, let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. And that is the core issue. That I may dwell among them. And in doing so, as was already anticipated in many ways beforehand through his meeting with the prophets, his speaking with or the patriarchs, Ultimately, I didn't mention this, but even with Jacob, when he saw the ladder in the dream, the angels going up and down, Jesus repeats that in John chapter 2 as the ultimate fulfillment of it. He's saying there is a connection between heaven and earth, that there is a way that man can have access to God again, and God is beginning to work out that plan to make it possible It is dramatically displayed in the nation of Israel where the conditions of the garden are again beginning to be made known among men by the presence of God among the nation. He says that I may dwell among them. That I may dwell among them. In fact, this was actually anticipated at Mount Sinai where the presence of God was there showing that he is the one who delivered his people. He is the one who would dwell with his people. But if you remember Sinai, the overall impact was that he was holy and they could not come near to him. They weren't even allowed to go near the people as a whole to the edge of the mountain lest they be killed. Only Moses and at one point somebody could go all the way up and then some of the elders were able to go higher up. And it says even at one point that they ate a meal in the presence of God. And so it was. But Sinai was to show the holiness of God, to put the fear of God in them. It is after Sinai that the temple is constructed and answers the question, how then shall we have fellowship with God if he is holy and our sin condemns us? And that is the glory of the sacrifices, the priesthood. God's presence as at Sinai is now among the people, but not as a play, way to, condu- to produce fear, but as a way to show his covenant with them, his redeeming grace to them, his election of them, his presence among them. This is suggested actually in Psalm 68, 17. The chariots of God are myriads, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them as at Sinai in holiness. In holiness. Psalm 78, 69 says this. He built his sanctuary like the heights, like the earth, which he has founded forever. The implication is there that, that God created the earth. He created the garden with the conditions and the purposes of men. That was rejected, but now he's doing the same through the nation of Israel in his sanctuary, which is to reflect it. 
And as God walked with God in the garden with Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.8, so he would with his people listen to the way that this fellowship is described in Leviticus 26. I will make myself a dwelling, tabernacle, among you and my soul will not reject you. Listen, I also walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. What was lost in the garden is being restored in the tabernacle and later in the temple. God's presence that was distance is now near. He who put them and out of his presence is now the one who will walk among them and they shall be his people. And in this way, the joy and the harmony and the hope that was originally created in the garden begins to be restored and the tabernacle becomes the place then of man's joyful fellowship with God as it was in the garden. It is there that man could once again meet with God. It is there once again that man could enjoy fellowship with God. And it was the longing of the believing Israelite's heart Just listen, Psalm 84. How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. The bird also has found a house and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. How blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. The psalmist is here is merely expressing his desire and his longing to be in the presence of God, which is where? Which is in Jerusalem. It's in the temple. It is the place where he's envious even of the animals that can make a nest in the rafters of the temple construct. He wishes he could be even like one of them and never leave the presence of God. This is the garden again. This is dramatically and often recognized to be the point in Psalm 36. Let me just read it. Psalm 36, 8. Connecting this idea of presence with the garden. And he says this, Psalm 36, 8. How, actually beginning in verse 7. How precious is your loving kindness, O God, and the children of men take their refuge in the shadow of your wings. They drink the fill of the abundance of your house and you give them to drink of the river of your delights for with you is the fountain of life and in your light we see light. One commenting on this said this, the house of the Lord was like the garden of Eden. It was where the people had access to God, received all the blessings of life and and fed on the peace offerings that drew from the living water. Here, this is a picture even of the rivers that converged and flowed out of the garden of Eden. And here, as metaphorically, is the place where God's people drink of his delights and of his presence. And so there it is. The tabernacle was meant then to be a reestablishment of the garden, the conditions of God. And the people of God were meant to once again come in under the will of God and be the, the spread of his name and his glory in all of the earth and a flourishing. Okay, I mean, told I'm speaking too fast. Uh, Conrad is translating. Here it is, the temple and the city of Jerusalem then are inextricably bound together so that Jerusalem is explicitly associated then with the presence of God upon the earth. And in being associated with the presence of God upon the earth and his 
uh, blessing and his presence. It was the center of the Israelites' joy, and it was the place out of which God's presence was once again to spread over the whole earth. You see? That's what Adam and Eve were originally supposed to do. That was what man was created for. Now God is doing it. Listen to Psalm 48.1. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. As the city of Jerusalem with the temple was exalted through the worship of God's people and their obedience, the glory of God and the name of God and the fame of God was to be spread throughout all of the earth and the joy of a reestablished relationship with God was to be made known. That was the point. But Israel, as we know, repeatedly failed to accomplish her task. And sin and the constant draw towards idolatry and the rejection of God and his righteousness was the mark of Israel's history. And so God began this establishment of his presence, but it was never fully known. Listen to his rebuke of Israel. Alas, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 4. This is really most of the Old Testament, but summarized well here. Alas, sinful nation, a people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from him. And then he says to them in verse 10, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Solomon, and give ear to the instruction of your God, you people of Gomorrah. In other words, you were the people who were called out. You were trusted with the presence of God. You were given the priesthood. You were given the commandments. You were given the prophets. You were given the temple. You were given God's deliverances. You were given the memory of God's redemption. You were given every good thing by God. And what have you done? You have become as bad as the most wicked of those in the kingdom of darkness. You have failed to follow through and to know my purposes. And so he says in chapter five of Isaiah, he sings a song for my well-beloved, a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill, speaking here of Jerusalem. He dug it all around. He removed its stones. He planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in the middle of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it. And then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will break down its walls. It will be trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds and no rain will fall on it. The conditions of the garden, which were theirs to be enjoyed, which were given by the blessings of God, now take again the conditions of the curse, where there was flourishing their thorns, where there was fellowship, there's rejection. Where there was building up, now there will be a tearing down. Why? Because you rejected your king and you followed another. That's why. And so the 
establishment of God or the inauguration of God of restoring his purposes for man, his kingship over all the earth through a people who would obey him, his blessing to man through giving himself and his presence and fellowship with them is dashed. It's dashed. But interestingly, the, the hope of the prophets, the hope of the prophets of Israel, the hope that God laid out before his people was that he would restore those conditions even still, even in light of the rejection of Israel. God would be faithful to the promise that he made. And interestingly, it's put in the conditions and the language of a garden, of a garden, of the Garden of Eden. Listen to just a few examples of this. Isaiah 51.3, he says this. Actually, let me begin with verse 2. Look to Abraham and your father and to Sarah who gave birth to you in pain. When he was but one, I called him and then I blessed him and I multiplied him. That's Abraham ultimately being brought to form the nation of Israel that was delivered from Egypt. Verse 3. Indeed, the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all of her waste places. Listen, and her wilderness he will make like Eden. And her desert, like the garden of the Lord, joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and a sound of melody. You're demonstrating now those who were cast out of the garden, but I'm going to restore it. I'm going to restore it as a place of joy, as a place of blessing, and as a place of flourishing. Just very quickly, in Ezekiel as well, Ezekiel chapter 36 after God gives his great promise of his deliverance of his people, the great word of the new covenant, which he reminds them, I'm acting for my own holy name, not for you, but so when I act, the, Lord, the world will know that I am God, that I am the Lord who keeps my promises, that I am the one who brings about my purposes. He says, I'm going to sprinkle clean water on you. You're going to be cleansed from your idols. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to put my spirit within you. You're going to walk in my ways. I'm going to put my king over you, whom I'm going to appoint, who is a descendant of David. He's going to rule over you. He says in verse 34 of Ezekiel 36, the desolate land will be cultivated instead of being a desolation in the sight of everyone who passes by. Listen, verse 34. And they will say this desolate land has become like the Garden of Eden. And the waste, the desolate, and the ruined cities are fortified and inhabited. That was the great hope and the promise. That's always God's promise that he kept before them. The garden is where my purposes were established. It was rejected by man. I seek to reestablish it. It was again rejected by man, but God will still bring it about. That is his purpose. That was his purpose in creation is that he would have fellowship with God. And the prophets anticipated a time then when the earth would be restored to its conditions before sin entered into the world. We won't look at all these. You're familiar with them. Isaiah 11, the lion will lay down with a lamb. A child will play next to the place, the den of a poisonous snake and do so without fear. You'll plant vineyards, he says in Isaiah, later in the chapter, in verse, chapter 65, and you're going to eat the fruit of them. You'll have peace. There will be no fear. There will be no gates needed to keep out enemies, but there will be peace with all of the nations. And God's name will be honored and his name will be spread throughout all of the earth and all of the nations the prophets look forward to would come and they would stream to the nation of Israel and worship the God who is 
And yet in the midst of this as well, it took on a particular form. And that is that God made a promise of one who would rule as king. And so here then you feel a bit of a tension as well in this Old Testament hope. And the tension is this, that God raised up kings, even a king to whom he made a promise, King David, a king whom he said he would establish his house. And from David, you have the line of Davidic kings who then are presumably the hope of the nation of Israel, which one will bring it about. And yet everyone is marked by sin. And even the line of David became so corrupted that eventually even Judah itself and Jerusalem itself would be destroyed and be ruined. And yet the promise remains And the tension is that no king that God has raised up has been able to fulfill it. David himself was not able to be the righteous king. David himself was a man of sin who needed a redeemer. David himself failed in the task that God had given to him. Moreover, any king who would rule as God had intended would himself have to have no sin. And so there was an anticipation in Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power and holy array. From the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. What is unique about that is this, is that the king was not allowed to perform the functions of a priest. The king ruled. The king ruled in righteousness. He upheld justice. The king fulfilled the will of God for his people. But the priest, they had a unique function that was distinct to them alone. And they represented God particularly to the nation but within the temple as the mediators of the sacrifices and of the presence of God so that he could be approached through sacrifice, so that he could be approached through the appointed atonement for their sin. Here it is combined in this one who is called The Lord, the Lord. Earlier in Psalm chapter two, he is the son whom God says he will establish and all of the nations will fall under the rod of his judgment, all of the nations who reject him. And so here is the hope. One part of the hope is that what Israel could not do, man could not do, Adam could not do because of sin, which is to fulfill God's purposes for man, God would do. He would bring it about. And so in the midst of all of these promises, we have this wonderful, in some ways mysterious figure who in the book of Isaiah is identified as the servant. And this servant is one who would come And he would be the king who would bring about the ability for God's people to live in harmony because he would remove sin by bearing it himself. And so he says, 
Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the chastening for our well-being fell upon him by his scourging, we are healed. And he goes on. He says, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. It was unable to prosper in the hand of Adam. It was unable to prosper in the hand of the nation of Israel. It was unable to prosper in even the most righteous of Israel that that Israel could produce. But in this one who would come, the purposes of God will prosper. And the good pleasure of God will prosper. And he is attached in some way then. They they would have understood to the promise of the son who would come in chapter 9 whom God would give. Who would have a kingdom in the line of David with a government of peace established in righteousness and justice. And the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. And he says... As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied, he being the father, by his knowledge, that is his experience of his work as the Messiah, as the atonement. The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, he will bear their iniquities, and I will allot him a portion with the great, he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death, was numbered with transgressors, and he bore the sins of many. So, here was the hope Here was the hope that the conditions would be restored, that there is a kingdom coming in which the curse will be removed. There is a king who will rule over God's people in righteousness and justice, in a kingdom that will not end. There will be peace. The fame and the presence of God that was located in Zion would be spread throughout the whole earth and the glory of the Lord would be spread throughout the whole earth. That God would once again walk among men and be present with them. But it was never known in the history of Israel. They would have to wait, and they were anticipating. And that's what we'll have to look at next week, where we look at the garden realities are realized in the appearance of Christ and in the appearing of Christ. But for now, at least in terms of God's anticipation, We are confronted with the reality that if salvation is going to come, it has to come from the Lord. And it has to come because if it does not come, then the conditions of Genesis 1 through 5 are still there and the wrath of God still hangs over men. If fellowship, which is what our hearts long for, is to be brought about, it is to be brought about by God's doing. But the glory is that God did bring it about. He did keep his promise. And while we will look at this more fully next week, he brought it about himself by taking on the very conditions of those who stood in rebellion to him, who took on himself the very consequences of the justice that they deserved that led to the destruction of the nation who stood in rebellion the justice that would lead to the destruction of the whole earth, but the justice that would be born ultimately we know by Christ so that we could be restored, so that we could be made new, so that we could know the presence of God. 
and that with a glory to come that we can barely anticipate. So here, at least to end for this week, is our reminder that God is a faithful God. He keeps his promises. Is a reminder that the world that we live in that stands in rejection to God is not the end of the story. That what man cannot do, what man refuses to do, God will do so that God alone receives the glory. But, so that God alone, as we sang this morning, becomes the joy and the delight in the soul of his people. What is our reward? We sing it. The reward is to know the love of God. The reward is God himself. It is the gracious purposes of God for us. And we delight in that. If you do not have that as your hope, then you need to consider your condition and consider the promise of God also in the book of Isaiah. And with this, we'll go into prayer. Turn to me all the ends of the earth and you shall be saved. Father, thank you for keeping your promise. Thank you for not abandoning us as you did the angels. The angels sinned and those who rebelled were forever consigned to eternal destruction. There is no hope for a fallen angel. There's only the anticipation of eternal misery. And yet for us, the sons of Adam, though we are no less guilty, we have the promise we have the certainty that all that you accomplished for us in Christ has made the way for us to enjoy you once again, to be forgiven of our sin, to have fellowship with you, to know that in our weakness, you will never fail us. And in our lack of all that we should be, you have been that for us in the person of Christ. And by trusting in him, we can have hope, forgiveness, and joy. Pray that is the reality of our lives. In your name, Jesus, amen.